While Andrew and Craig believe the joy of discovery is crucial to enjoying any well-told tale, they will not shy away from spoiling specific story beats when necessary. Plus, these are books you should have read by now. Welcome to Overdue. It is a podcast about the books you've been meaning to read. My name is Craig. My name is Andrew. And as always, each week we are going to tackle a book that either Andrew or I read, uh, summarize it as necessary, and just kind of gauge our reaction to it. These are books that we've had on our shelves uh, for a while or that people have been telling us we should read or in many, in cases probably in the coming weeks that Andrew and I are going to challenge each other to read uh <laughs> maybe as some sort of endurance test I'm not sure uh so yeah what I want to thank everybody who's uh kind of tuned in over the past couple weeks uh, it's been really exciting to get this thing going, so I just want to say yeah, that before we start. We re- we usually record a couple episodes in advance, and so this is the first one we've recorded after we actually posted the first episode. So we're we're finally like getting reactions, even though we've been you know reading books in a vacuum for <laughs> yeah for like three weeks. So yeah, it's it's cool to see that people seem to dig the premise, and they're all liking us on on Facebook and. Yeah, like all those all those modern measures of success. That... <laughs> that's yeah, that's how you measure it. Um, <laughs> and we'll talk about this more towards the end of the podcast in in you know uh, housekeeping business. But uh, people have been giving us book recommendations and stuff like that. Please keep that coming. We're it's very exciting, uh, and we'll kind of help shape the podcast as we go. Uh, without further ado, Andrew, what did you read this week? Okay, this week we're we're changing it up a little bit. We're changing the game. Okay. Um, so far, the books that we've read have been, I don't want to say that they're like intellectually heavy lifting, but they have been stuff with a few layers and things that, that like give you a lot of themes and things to think about. All right. Um, this week, we read The Da Vinci Code by oh. Dan Brown. <laughs> well, we did not read it. I, I read it. Yeah, I've, I yes. read it years ago. I think I read it. It was still... Probably when it was popular. <laughs> I, I guess. I was. I mean, I borrowed my sister's copy, and it was in hardback, so it was at least fairly recent. And I want to say I read it before the movie came out, okay. uh, before Tom Hanks and his terrible hair happened. Um but why why do you have this book? Why is this a thing that you decided to bring on this podcast? <laughs> well, okay. My girlfriend has the book. It's not it's not mine. So I can at least I can skirt that much responsibility. Okay. Like you don't you did not give someone money to own this uh, No, I did not like walk into Walden Books and say like one Da Vinci Code, please. It doesn't make me laugh because Walden Books was probably still around when this book came out. Um, yeah, and this is probably coming out in my tone already. But the the reason I decided to read this particular book is because I have, for years, without reading it, hated relentlessly on it and people who liked it. Now, is that... Okay, let's get this out of the way first. Okay. Is that something that you would that you think might just be your what why is it the da vinci code in particular or is that like 
Do you find yourself doing that for certain things that you think are maybe of dubious quality that a lot of people get into? I mean, I know that I do it, but I certainly I don't think that it's just me. Like, like look at all the like the Twilight rage on the internet okay. yeah. about how stupid that book is, and I'm sure that like tons of the people who who are just down, down, down on it have never you know have never cracked the book open, have never gone to see. Robert Pattinson and that kid with no shirt in one of those movies. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that that kid with no shirt, really? Yeah, I don't know what his name is. (laughs) But yeah, like, certainly it's not, it's not just me who does this. Maybe it's a certain type of person who does this. Well, and I think it's (laughs) also. And maybe I'm, I'm that type of person, but. (laughs) That's possible. I also think that it might have to do with what what anyone's particular tastes are and if you can see something that is so wildly out of your aesthetic and there's a lot of people over there clamoring for it and you just go oh no thanks like my mom doesn't doesn't instinctively like fantasy things because she doesn't like the names she once told me she was like i I can i can i can understand (laughs) she's like like, i don't care about those harry potter wizards there's too many crazy names it's like okay well you're never gonna like that and you're not gonna understand why people do i get that um but so yeah okay so you had a stigma the the da vinci code had a stigma in your mind right and i wanted to i want to actually read it and and my my tone is coming across as Derisive because I am still a little derisive. <laughs> but um, would you say this is an exercise in trying not to judge a book by its cover, Andrew? Yes, yeah. Because okay, I like review stuff for a living. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like it is one of the ways that I earn a paycheck. And so when I when I have like a new phone or a laptop, even if the particular company that made that phone or laptop has a reputation for making stuff that sucks. Mm-hmm. Like you have to, I I try to come at every every new thing that I look at with a certain amount of of um, I don't want to say objectivity because in reviews I think that's kind of that's like not a thing. Like of course you're bringing your experiences and your and your tastes to to bear on something, but I try to give things the benefit of the doubt. Yeah, and so this is like the this is my attempt to apply what I've learned in my professional life to my book reading life. <laughs> okay, okay. Uh, so do you want to tell me a little bit about what this book is? Do, what it's, happens in the book? Who? What is Dan Brown writing about? It's an elaborate... It's it's kind of a murder mystery, kind of a whodunit kind of thing. Like, there's this dude, Robert Langdon... And okay. we're totally probably going to spoil the Da Vinci Code for you guys. Get so if, ready. Here if, we go. If, like me, you have not found time in the last decade to read this book, you should buckle up. <laughs> <laughs> or you can pause the podcast and potentially ignore Andrew's derisive tone, go right. purchase a copy of the book, and then read it, and then come back and listen to why Andrew may or may yeah, not. It'll, like only, it'll <laughs> only take like an hour. Like it's not. It's, it'll, it won't take you that long. <laughs> Okay, uh, it's well, about this dude, Robert Langdon. Mm-hmm. And, uh, Who he is he? Is, what does he do? He is a symbologist. Is that a real his, profession? His, I did not look it up. He His job appears to be to study art and find all the secret things that the people who made the art, like their, their like hidden subtext. And sometimes 
that hobby has interesting results because it turns out that there's some like national treasure stuff going on. Okay. <laughs> and and um you know, it, it leads him down this rabbit hole of, of intrigue and and thousand year old secrets. And that's that's basically the gist of the book. Like I guess I can I mean we don't need to talk about Well, okay, what is the what is the setup? What is the if National Treasure is about Benjamin Franklin and the Masons, like who what is for for those who don't know what world is uh, Robert Langdon stumbling into? Right. And so why is Mona this... Lisa on the cover? <laughs> there's this um, kind of Masonic-esque... Um, I don't want to say it's a cult, but it's a um, it's just a a, uh, a society uh, called the Priory, Priory, Priory of Scion. Is that? I, did you see the movie? I don't know how to pronounce it. <laughs> I don't. I did see the movie. I don't remember. Use your <laughs> use your Latin knowledge, right? Isn't it? I nope. It's all gone. Oh, it's all gone. Um, okay, great. Okay, we'll we'll go with Priory. It's called the Priory of Scion, and basically they've got this secret mm-hmm. um, that they've protected for like thousands of years. It turns out that Mary Magdalene was actually Jesus's wife. And that descendants of Jesus survive to the present day. Okay. And so for for centuries, like the church has known that they that the priory knew this. And they had kind of a gentleman's agreement that the stuff would not come out because of course it would cause a lot of, <laughs> of trouble for the church if its like core beliefs were were challenged. And that core belief being that Jesus didn't marry no hooker. That's well that plus, you know, Jesus is divine, and so oh, of okay. course, yeah, yeah. He, he didn't need he didn't need to satisfy his carnal pleasures because he was a god and not now, a man. Now, I saw the Last Temptation of Christ, starring Willem Dafoe <laughs> as a somewhat believable Jesus Christ. I can't. Re- <laughs> I think he had sex in that movie. Maybe I Did mean he? I don't think people was that the Last Temptation. <laughs> there were other temptations. That was like the next to last temptation of Christ. <laughs> Uh, yeah. There's also Harvey <laughs> Keitel played Judas in that movie. It's super weird. If you want a weird <laughs> Jesus movie and you're done with the Da Vinci Code, go watch that. Um, okay, so the church was like, Jesus is still Jesus. He's not actually this guy who had kids and had sex with hookers. So Right, okay. yeah, like over the years, the 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 gospels that referred to Jesus's manliness, like his his humanity were kind of now, shoved out of the way in favor of the ones that talked about him like he was a god. I want to read the Gospels that talk about Jesus' manliness. Like the <laughs> ones that are just like, Jesus was super ripped. And he was nailing pieces of wood together with his bare hands. Like, He's a carpenter. He's got to be pretty buff. Pretty jacked, I bet. Yeah. Okay, so he's not I mean he's gotta pay the bills in between turning water into wine, right? So yes, that's true. Like I think he does that on a freelance basis. Yeah, that's 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 not a nine to five job. Party tricks are not a nine to five job. If you're gonna make balloon <laughs> animals, you don't do that every hour of every day. That's like a Saturday afternoon <laughs> beer money you, job. You are equating 
feeding the masses with like three loaves and two fish to make him balloon animals right now. I'm just no. I was equating you know. turning water into wine at a wedding with balloon animals. If you want to make food out of out of nothing, that's that's a whole different thing. Okay, raising the dead party trick or not depends on who's dead. <laughs> If it's like a weekend at Bernie's scenario, then it's a party <laughs> trick. If it's like someone who was... He would be doing that at a party. That, yeah, it's true. It's like it would be some sort of like solstice festival. And he'd be like, oh, don't worry. He's back. He's wearing a Hawaiian shirt. It's the Hawaiian solstice, <laughs> you know. Okay, so you you said earlier the church had an agreement with the Priory of Sion. We're back in the Da Vinci Code now, if, if we yeah, lost back, you. Yeah. Um, back from our weekend at Bernie's fanfiction. <laughs> Which church are we talking about? Um, the Roman Catholic Church, prior, primarily. Okay. Where um, does Paul Bettany figure into this? Now, you didn't see the movie. Paul Bettany, do you know who he played in the movie? Nope. He nope. played uh, Silas. Oh, yeah. I mean, there's this. Um, there's this... Splinter of the Catholic Church called Opus Dei, who mm-hmm. um, basically they are a group within Catholicism that, because of a large donation to the Vatican, like in the 80s, have now risen to a place of power, and that uh, that place of power has been threatened. Okay. And uh, so... There's this character called the teacher who like is all mysterious and he calls up this bishop guy and his his albino pal Silas and um and is like, yo, if you get these Priory of Scion secrets, we'll totally not kick you out of Catholicism. <laughs> oh, re- I don't remember that being the stake. Is that what it is? Like Opus yeah, Day is like- too crazy for the church, but if they'll do the church's dirty work, they'll keep them around. Right, basically. I seem to remember all of those, like, political scenes early in the book that are deliberately, like, obtuse. Like, you're not supposed to know who everyone is, and it's, like, all a mystery, and then it never really makes any sense. (laughs) Mm -hmm. All right, so Robert Langdon's... I mean, you can can get into, like, individual story beats. Like, there's this, there's this, you know, the female protagonist, Sophie... um, is a cryptologist and and she and Robert um like it's her grandfather who getting killed he's like the priory of scions grand master and he knows all their secrets and stuff okay and so with his dying breaths he like sets up a puzzle for his granddaughter <laughs> and he knows Robert Langdon is in town and so he gets them together like improbably and points them in the direction of the of the Priory of Science secrets. Is there any? What is the explanation for this Rube Goldberg machine of truth that is the book? <laughs> Wait, what? So like the like we got to go here and discover this thing, and then solve this puzzle, and then solve this crossword, and then build this jigsaw puzzle or whatever. Like, what is the? Is there an explanation for these series of mysteries? Do you know what I mean? Well, I mean, the action is kind of driven because Langdon is suspected of killing oh, that's Sophie's right. grandfather for oh a long my time. God, and that's so, right. And so there's like a, it's not like just them sitting in a hotel room trying to figure stuff out. Like they're constantly on the run from the law. Okay. I and forgot so about that, that. That drives most of the action. Okay. 
And then they meet up with his third character, um, Lee. Uh, is that that would be Lee Teabing? I think is his name. He's a uh, he's a guy who's been studying like the the Holy Grail, which I guess is the, is he the old guy? The, he's an older gentleman, I believe. Yeah, he's an old guy. All right. <laughs> <laughs> I have like very brief images in my head of the movie, and I, I'm. I don't think it's Ian McKellen, but it's someone like Ian McKellen if it isn't Ian McKellen. In <laughs> An the movie. Ian McKellen esque character. So Gandalf. So Gandalf <laughs> has been studying the Priory of Sion and uh, the Holy Grail. The Holy Grail is the shorthand that they use for like all these documents and also Mary Magdalene's bones. Okay, so it's not literally a Grail. It's not a cup. And is there like a puzzle where they figure that out? Yes. Okay, of course. All right. And um, that guy who, he ends up being the teacher and he's the he's the architect of oh, no. all this crazy stuff because he thinks that the world deserves to hear all of the, all of the secrets and to have the truth revealed. And, so he's, and a, he's a part of the prior, who is he? What is his? He's, he's just a. He's just a historian, I guess, who who um, who really doesn't like stuff to be hidden. I don't know. <laughs> like he... I like that. I I like that broad generalization of historians that just like no secrets ever. No secrets. I'm gonna hire <laughs> cryptologists to solve all the secrets of the universe and then disseminate all this information. Um, yeah. All right. Cool. So that's basically the deal. Like, I didn't. Like, we don't need to spend as much time digging into the themes and things in this book <laughs> as we have in last books because – and here's, here's like, my first, like, for checkpoint the first, like, major problem with it the first okay. is in a really good book, I mean, what happens – like, how it ends is often important. Mm-hmm. But if that's the only important thing, then I, like – I don't like your book as much. Okay. Like now that you know the the main mysteries, like the you know the big secret of the Da Vinci Code, um, there's just there's just not that much reason to read it. Like the the prose is is normally pretty workmanlike. Like there are some pretty pretty dubious descriptions of people in there. <laughs> do you that have lead any me examples? To believe that I do have an example. Okay. Me, I don't want I don't want this to my, pass uh, us by. I want you to. Let me, Elaborate on this. My this page number. Okay. Well, I mean, just to, while I look up a specific example, there's um, like it it periodically, and and we'll get more into this later. But periodically, like it, there are flashbacks from the action to um, to one of Robert Langdon's classes at Harvard. I think Harvard is what he teaches at. Okay. Um. And he's always like going into these famous works of art, and and telling the students like what the what the symbols in it are and like what the what the subtext is, and his students in these little scenes are always like their minds are blown, <laughs> like they're they couldn't fathom that oh the Mona Lisa maybe she, maybe she was a dude oh my god like, <laughs> like they're reacting in ways that. Like, I had an art history class in college, and I liked it fine, but it was 8 in the morning, and I couldn't be bothered to talk in there. Like, Well, you didn't have the Sherlock Holmes of art history 
I teaching know. you about things. <laughs> like if, if you didn't, if that person didn't know all the secrets of the world, you weren't going to learn them. Yeah. Like Dan Brown's world is one where people immediately believe everything that's told to them. And it immediately has an impact on them. Like, okay. Like Sophie and her grandfather have this like break 10 years or so before the main action of the book where she like witnessed him being in this like sex ceremony. Yeah. It's like an eyes wide shut thing. Yeah. Yeah. All right. And so she like, that's enough for her to not want to talk to her grandfather who previously was like her only family in the world for 10 years. Like he, she just totally ignores him. Like, and oh, so I can't have this... a grandpa in a sex cult. Goodbye. Like, that was... Pretty much. Okay. Like... <laughs> and then later, Langdon... Like, she tells Langdon about it on on the plane. And, and she's like, oh, my God, I've been wrong all these years about my grandfather. And it, like, instantly thaws her out. And I feel like, in real life, like, if you had this thing for 10 years that you, like, harbored you wouldn't just be able to get over it in a second. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess... It's just something about it strikes me as as not genuine. It, it's also that thing where I don't know if one time seeing... Maybe, maybe I just don't remember that scene as well. I don't remember how damaging it could potentially be to her. But one time seeing a relative in a sex cult might not be what makes me not speak to them for 10 years, you know? <laughs> it seems like a really, like seems very dismissive on her part yeah and uh, yeah and she made no she made no attempt to contact him and no uh i don't know there's just no no nothing all right do you have you found your examples yet um yes okay so it's the first description we get of sophie okay um Langdon turned to see a young woman approaching. She was moving down the corridor toward them with long, fluid strides, a haunting certainty to her gait. Dressed casually in a knee-length, cream-colored Irish sweater over black leggings, she was attractive and looked to be about 30. Her thick, burgundy hair fell unstyled to her shoulders, framing the warmth of her face. Unlike the waifish, cookie-cutter blondes that adorned Harvard dorm room walls, this woman was healthy with an unembellished beauty and genuineness that radiated a striking personal confidence. That's a lot. (laughs) It's a lot. And who describes, like, I read this to one of my other friends, and she was like, it sounds like he's describing, like, a show horse. (laughs) (laughs) I was going to point out the phrase haunting certainty before you moved on to, like, wayfish cookie cutter stuff. Like, what is a haunting certainty? I don't know. Just it was. She was really certain about it, and it kind of haunted. It was kind of ghost-like. And who's is this through Langdon's eyes? Well, it's the narration is kind of weird because it does jump from perspective to perspective Uh a lot, uh and within those perspectives, you do get like the internal monologues and thoughts of of the particular characters. But it's also like there's there's also you have the sense that there's an omniscient narrator who's telling you these things and that you're not directly in their head. You're kind of one degree removed. Yeah, which it's that kind of over-the-shoulder third person. Um, And I I seem to remember every chapter is like a different person's perspective, and then it kind of moves around. Um, That's usually where the chapter breaks happen. Um, But is that particular description in a Langdon chapter, do you know? 
It's, I mean, it's, it's from Langdon slash the narrator's perspective. Yeah. That's weird. That's, there's just, it's just too rich. It's, there's, there's just something, yeah, there's something tinny. There's something that's not genuine about the way that he describes things sometimes. And also the way people talk, like going back to one of the scene, like the classroom scenes, like he's having this interaction with a student and he explains something to the student and the student is like, no way. And then Langdon is like, way. And it's like, <laughs> and we're supposed to believe that Langdon is like, he's like the Indiana Jones of art history. But is he a little, I, he strikes me as a little tweedy though. He is. And a, a particular description of him in the book is that he is Harrison Ford in Harris Tweed, at which point I... That was the first time. Did I you throw the book? Does he? Because well, Dan Brown is so, like... He's so insistent on pointing out, like, not only is Langdon the, the world's foremost symbologist, but he's also such a dreamboat. Is... <laughs> is there a little, like... Uh... Is there a little self-insertion happening, you think? Is this like, a, I don't is this know. Dan Brown's best self? Man, is this, this is mean. <laughs> I, I can't, I don't want to continue with this line. That seems really mean of us. Um, Maybe. But, okay, so clearly. But yeah, going back to, oh, do you want to? Well, I was going to say, like, prose, your, your opinion is that his prose does not stand up. It is not. No. But what about the plotting? Like, this this book seems to prioritize plotting over theme or over atmosphere right like it moves pretty briskly like you go from puzzle to puzzle really quickly but my i mean in in a book that's ostensibly about discovery and about like unraveling a mystery the characters don't they don't need to discover a lot like there's no there's no problem that the book can throw at them that they can't solve just by sitting and thinking about it long enough. Mm-hmm. Like it's every, every character is like perfectly equipped to decode every puzzle that's, that's, that's thrown at them. And it just, it feels a little too easy. Like it doesn't, when they finally figure out all these secrets and stuff, it's just, it's just through a long string of sudden like lightning strike realizations and it does it, it doesn't feel earned by well, the end of it i don't I think. think that's a tricky thing to write i think in general not not saying that maybe dan brown is even the best example of it but i think about like the recent iteration of sherlock with a uh, mr cumberbatch mm-hmm. um and that is most of that show is here's a puzzle and he's already solved it and then it's catching the audience up to how he solved it, basically. Sure. Um, yeah, I can see that. And I it's mean, just difficult in a mystery in the mystery genre to, on one hand, keep the audience in the dark, and still create a scenario where the characters, because the audience can't solve the mystery. Like that's just not it's not interactive. Mm-hmm. It's it's a book. Um, so what is how do you move the plot forward and keep it interesting? And how do you dramatize people solving what is essentially a crossword puzzle sometimes? Right. And and Sherlock's actually an interesting example, and I think we should run with it a little bit. Um, when you've got, you know, when you've got this this structure where you've just, you know, the, the point of the book is to get to the end of the book and figure out what happens. What 
makes the best of these books work, I think, is the stuff kind of surrounding the mystery, you know, the characters Mm -hmm. and the style. And I think part of why I didn't care that much for the Da Vinci Code ultimately, like, I I think I, I understand why people like it, and I'm sure we'll talk about that in a little bit. But, um... What Sherlock does around these, you know, layers of puzzles is you've got, you know, a very likable kind of uh, audience stand-in, I think, in in Watson. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, the show's got, I mean, it's it's very quickly and well written and, you know, funny. And, um, and it's got, you know, it's got a lot of stylistic flair. Like, there's a lot of fun stuff to, to look at in every episode. I yeah, think. yeah. Okay. So, I mean, it is kind of the same structure where Sherlock looks at it and he figures it out. And in that sense, it's not earned. But, you know, you also have kind of interper- interpersonal relationships to, you know, those those plates keep spinning like as a backdrop to the stuff. Yeah, it, it is about what you can keep aloft while the pretty conventional murder mystery is taking place. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and like and the question is, is there enough other stuff going on to merit going back to it after you've after you've read it once? And with the Da Vinci Code, the only reason I could see going back to it is because you forgot what happened in it. <laughs> okay. Like I, I don't think that and those, you know, those examples that we that I just called out of the pros being a little shaky were just you know, just a couple of the <laughs> Of the many notes that I that I took, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think. But it's just like the book is the book is all like Langdon will realize something or Sophie will realize something, and then there will be a few paragraphs like explaining the basic concept, and it'll be like Langdon hurriedly explained blah 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 blah, mm-hmm. and like all the stuff that Dan Brown needs to make the the plot point work. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And then and then they have cracked that puzzle, and then there's another puzzle. Yeah, I feel like, like it all just it all just it feels a lot like they're just kind of marking time until they get to the until they get to the end of the book. Like I, it's, a lot of it just feels like it's filling pages. I feel like something that we might want to put on the on the list, and maybe some of our listeners are like thinking of recommendations right now. Um, I want to go read some Agatha Christie now because I've only ever seen one Agatha Christie play and she's got you know she has all sorts of mysteries that she's written so I'm interested because I feel like that's a genre of like book that I'm not well versed in um yeah and I I don't point of comparison yeah and I don't I don't want us to totally eschew like pop lit either Mm -hmm. like you don't you don't always want to eat peas like sometimes you want to eat a candy bar but <laughs> well the problem when you say peas that kind of like makes uh for lack of a better word literary fiction a little less appealing <laughs> <You're> just like, <laughs> it's just a bunch of peas well you know leafy greens peas kale, for, yeah peas for your asparagus soul. Like kale peas for your brain i don't know kale for your brain <laughs> Well, okay, here's a question. We were talking uh, on the Love and the Time of Cholera episode about the difference between, like, genre fiction and uh, literary fiction and just kind of the muscles that your brain uses. Comparing this to recent genre fiction that you've read, does that 
what of what of it works in say like a, a fantasy novel or or anything else that you've that you might have read even in the last couple of years that you don't think is working in the Da Vinci Code? Is it that extra kind of character dressing and the quality of the prose? And I think I think that's it in large part. The Da Vinci Code also adds this this layer where you're not sure whether Dan Brown is telling the truth about like the concepts and the, the works of art that he, Oh, interesting. That he calls out, like clearly there are some grains of truth here. Like a lot of the, like a lot of the cryptological, is that a word? Sure. Yeah. (laughs) Like uh, the puzzles and and things that he talks about have their roots in reality. Mm -hmm. And the book even starts with, you know, the Priory of Scion is, is real. And, and so the whole time you you are reading stuff, and I think that some people do read it as having some you know like essential element of truth, yeah, to it. Like maybe the Mary Magdalene thing is 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 real, and definitely you know based on a reading of the Bible and of her place in it. Like I suppose you could, I I, I think that people have read it and come away with that mm-hmm. that you know basic reaction. But, um, you know, I, I looked it up, and the Priory of Scion was kind of invented in 1950-something by one guy, and he was pretending it was, like, this whole cult <laughs> that, it, that it existed for, you know, centuries. And okay. It's, it's, it's hard to explain the effect of all this stuff, but I don't know. I, I kind of, every time he he pointed out something that was in like the last supper or, or, you know, the Mona Lisa. Yeah. And uh, he was talking about like how obvious the stuff was like one, are you telling the truth? And how does that like affect my immersion in your book? And two, like even within the fictional universe that he is constructed, it doesn't seem like, it would be that hard to figure this stuff out. Like how would this stuff have remained a mystery for hundreds and hundreds of years? If you had these researchers who knew so much about it and who were so up on it and who could solve all the mysteries about, you know, where it was hidden in, you know, a couple of days. Yeah. Why did it take Harrison Ford and Harris Tweed to come (laughs) along and solve all this kind of stuff? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I think, I don't know if this answers your question. No, but it kind of it kind of bridges into one of the things we definitely wanted to talk about, which is what is the appeal of this book, and kind of relating that to your predisposition uh, against the book, I suppose. And it is that sense of something you were saying. I was reminded of that whole Mike Daisy thing with the the kind of play he wrote about Steve Jobs and the fabricated elements of something that is sort of truthful. You know, and this idea that you're covering something that is real or at least exists in some fashion in the real world. And then you make a fictional leap so that you can tell what you think is a good story. And then someone comes along and reads it and that line is purposefully blurred, which may enhance your appreciation of the fiction, but is not. And then authors tend to get coy about whether or not they're basing it on fact or not, which is hopefully to help them get the story across to more people. I don't know. You'd yeah, yeah. 
I think, and I think Brown does that too. I, I read, I was on Amazon reading just some reviews of the book and there's another author and I don't, his name escapes me, but he does kind of something similar where he takes these like standing religious conventions and works of art and things and works them into his books. And it sounds like his books are available in like an annotated edition that kind of explains to you what's, you know, what's real and what's, what's fabricated. Interesting. Um, you've got to be careful about drawing a line between this and this and Daisy. And again, Daisy is something that I have pretty strong opinions about. Yeah. I think that while the point he was trying to make was a good one, it was absolutely trust shattering and disingenuous of him to even, you know, to go on this American life and say, you know, I I did this. This happened. Yeah, you're right. That that kind of the difference between that is is a really clear line between journalism and fiction, which is n- definitely right. not what Dan Brown is purporting to do. I, right, I, and then yeah. and that has like real world stakes and and stuff yeah. too. Um, and and you know, despite Dan Brown's little the Priory of Cyan is real prologue, and he's not he's not wrong. Like it's not yeah, it's yeah. not real in the sense that this stuff happened, but it's real in the sense that it exists in in like the the physical plane in which we all exist well and I, I, I think it's it's funny because i think that the appeal of it or i don't know the the appeal of it but it seems to me it's it's very similar to national treasure it's very similar to in a weird way the like the night at the museum kind of fiction like get wait you just made a face on this video call I'm sorry no, no my face okay. doesn't pick up on my mic no, I, know. I, d- I did just pull quite a quite a quite a mug <laughs> you like got face whiplash um <laughs> this idea that here are a bunch of things that you can go and look at in the real world and that people actually are interested in that are real and then i'm going to write a compelling narrative that just ties them all together because isn't that neat mm-hmm. which you're it's almost like you're you have a built-in audience because people already have questions about these things. Plenty of people in the world want to know more about the church or they at least have an affiliation with it and then when you say, "Ooh, I wrote a book that tells you more about it" or a neat story that takes that is related to it, there's uh that secret can be very appealing. Mm-hmm. I think that's well, I, yeah. I think people People like that kind of stuff. You know, people like there to be a reason. Yeah, you're right. Or like a connecting thread between things. People people like conspiracies. People like this stuff taps into you know, it taps a nerve. And and even people who aren't prone to like I think people who think the moon landing was faked were idiots. I think that people <laughs> who think nine eleven was an inside job are idiots. <laughs> but I'm still kind of interested. I'm interested to hear why they think that. Yeah. If only for like the entertainment value of it. <laughs> well, and I think that's that's a big part of that that's part of why people like the book. I mean, it, it's also very easy to read. It's a quick read. Mm-hmm. It's not, you know, you, you you do get caught up in it. Like I did by the end of it really just I wanted to know what the ending was. And in that in that way he's successful, you know. Yeah. Yeah. And so I guess this this becomes a bigger question of like I, I don't think the book is very thematically deep. I don't think the prose is great. Um but 
does that mean that the book isn't worthwhile? And like, that's, that's the question that I'm kind of wrestling with is like, no, I don't really, I didn't really like it that much. If somebody asked me, I might not, you know, this probably would not be my first book recommendation to give (laughs) to a friend or something. Yeah. Yeah. But you know, if, if you want to eat a candy bar every once in a while, that's, that's fine. I mean, my, my problem is when you eat candy bars like this and Harry Potter and Twilight and you think that they are peas or asparagus or like a kale salad with with nice I think, I locally think I wanna, sourced dressing. I think I want to get away from no like, vegetable metaphors. highbrow fiction as green vegetables. I think, like, I think let's, it's enjoyable and it's good for you. That's okay. what I'm saying. Maybe maybe a good asparagus with a little bit of butter on it or something. Some lemon juice. Ooh, ooh, get that butter get mess that. out of here. <laughs> That butter mess. Come on. Yeah. Oh, it's so good. Um, <laughs> Says the guy who put olive oil on Cheerios. <laughs> I did not put it on Cheerios. It was on oh, and oatmeal. oatmeal. Sorry. And That's it, way better. It was only okay. It was not amazing. I've since started putting butter in it, which is a lot better. Uh, we should read the. You should read the joy of cooking from oh my cover to cover. God. Oh, that's a great that. idea. Oh man. <laughs> um, so yeah, it is. It's. It sounds like it's a. It's a serviceable plot, and as I recall, it's a serviceable plot that will, you know, get you go, get you moving through the book. But the characters are kind of, uh... yeah, like there's, there's, you know, it's it's about the destination, and the journey is mm-hmm. kind of not that remarkable. And it really benefited and benefits, I think, from the central mystery being about Jesus, which is like. Like I said, there's a built-in audience for people who want to know more about Jesus. Like, that's just a thing. Yeah, and I, I think the book was mildly controversial just yes. because um, it doesn't... It, I, I, and I think Dan Brown comes out pro-religion, really, because there is a, there's a section where Sophie and Langdon are talking about, you know, if they find the stuff, should they tell the world about it? Mm-hmm. And... Um, and Langdon says, you know, even even if it started with a lie, religion does, you know, there, there's a lot of good that it does in the modern world. Like it's it's that's still um, that's still problematic. I mean, you don't you don't have religious wars on the scale of the Crusades happening in the modern era. But yeah. obviously there are still extremists, you know, of of many faiths who who kill in the name of you know, in the name of their, of their God. But, but Brown's stance is that for the majority of people, religion does more good than it does harm. Mm. Interesting. I don't know that I personally agree totally with that. Like, I I don't know that we want to get into that. Well, and I, I think that was, that was one of the few points in the book where, where I thought he was really, trying to tap into something more universal and something like about the human condition rather than just about this, this little, uh, Matryoshka doll <laughs> mystery that he's constructed. Uh, well, yeah. And it's that sense that like, not only is a religion, a set of beliefs, but it, in this context, it's a series of organizations, right? And mm-hmm. it's organizations that are potentially in conflict, even though on the surface they believe in the same thing and they they want to do different things with those essential truths and that is definitely universal 
um, mm -hmm. and you see it on a micro and a macro scale all the time, whether it's community outreach or whether it's legislating your beliefs. Um, so I think that, yeah, that's where this book can be a little bit more than a mystery, I guess, but it's, it's not like he's spending hours and hours of that on that. Yeah, right. I mean, that's, that's not the point. The, there are like a couple of kind of reflective passages in that vein through the whole book. And the, the edition I read is like the big hardcover illustrated edition. What? So it's like 450 What is long. illustrated in that book, Andrew? We didn't even talk it's, about this. He's got pictures of all the paintings and stuff oh. that he talks about. Does he have like pictures of the puzzles? Or just the paintings? Um, yeah, like when the puzzle... And a lot of the puzzles, like there's this thing called a cryptex. Yeah, the cryptex! Where you... Where it's basically a giant combination lock and you spell out the the word and then it pulls apart but if you don't spell the word out correctly it will destroy whatever's inside is there is there and so for, a cryptex inside the cryptex yes yes yeah yes it's an it's an onion okay it's got layers but I've, and i feel like that's that's part of how he stretches out the plot is like puzzles within puzzles within puzzles mm -hmm. i don't know they solve one cryptex only to be faced with another one it's like why <laughs> What was the point of the first cryptex in the first place? <laughs> Why was this a mystery when there was just another mystery behind it? Um, what was I talking about before I before I blacked out with anger? Well, we were talking <laughs> we were talking about uh, the potential thematic concerns of the book and the reflective past. The Oh yeah, just just they don't they don't happen with any regularity, and they're not, you know, they're there, mm -hmm. but they're not the points. Like they are an afterthought to the larger mystery. I think. All right. Well, that was Dan Brown's Da Vinci Code. Your any final words on it, Andrew? What you learned from the book? Anything? <laughs> um, I don't know. I think I think there's. This is not really my genre. It's not really my style. I I understand why people like it. <laughs> I can I can hear you tiptoeing right now. Well, like I just I I want to say I don't I don't think it's fair of of me and this is something that I'll do and something that I worry that others are doing to me. Okay. If I see you in public reading Twilight or The Da Vinci Code, like I, I try not to, but in spite of my best efforts, like I will come to a snap judgment about your character based on the book that you're reading. Yeah, yeah. And I should not. That's bad. That I should not do that. Okay. Like the, there is nothing inherently wrong about liking the Da Vinci Code. Like certainly it's it's entertaining, and there is some some value in in like the time you spend reading it. Mm -hmm. Just. You know, in the sense that you are entertained, okay, for most of it. When but, when you're not tearing your hair out at terrible pros, yeah, right. Okay, <laughs> but um, yeah, there's just there's just not. I don't think it stands up to rereads, and most of my favorite books do, and that's what it kind of boils oh, down okay. to. That's a good point. Yeah. Mm -hmm. All right. Well, if you want to share any thoughts about the Da Vinci Code, tell us we're wrong or tell us we're right. Uh, you can tweet at us at Overdue Pod. Uh, or find us on Facebook to search Overdue and leave a comment on the Facebook page. Or you can email us at OverduePod at gmail.com. 
And if you want to find any back episodes or any other information about the show, you can go to overduepodcast.com. If you don't agree with Andrew and you want to go rush out and buy a copy of The Da Vinci Code or buy a copy of one of the other books that we've talked about on the show, you can do so through an Amazon link that will be attached to each episode on the site. Uh, This is also a way to support us and a way to do that without, you know, gross Google ads that might randomly just pull text and advertise things we don't understand or want to advertise. (laughs) (laughs) And um, due to, you know, by popular demand, um, since we are recording these a few books in advance at this point, we're also going to try to keep the next book or two that we're doing up on the site along with Amazon links. So if you want to follow along and you think that would, um, if, if you want to get, as mad about parts of the Da Vinci Code as I got, or if you want to get mad at different parts of the Da Vinci Code, <laughs> we'll have those links up there for you to use. And we'll also we also have um, on the website uh, an RSS feed that you can subscribe to and an iTunes Store link. So if you wanted to subscribe, if you want to rate us or review us, a couple people have done that already, and that's awesome. Yeah, tell a friend. It'd be really we'd really appreciate it. Just like yeah, one spread friend. the word because it seems like people, I don't know, people seem to like this idea. And I don't want to toot my own horn, but I like this idea. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's pretty, It's we're having a good time and we want more people to kind of take part in that. We also appreciate all the feedback and so more people listening to it can give us a better idea of, of what's working and, and what other books we should be on the lookout for because I think that's yeah, part of the Yeah, keep it coming. Uh, because we want yeah, to keep mixing it up. We don't want to read something super dense every week, just like we don't want to read murder mysteries every week. So. <laughs> I certainly don't. <laughs> uh, well, Andrew, thanks for slogging through the Da Vinci Code this week. Oh, no problem. And thanks to whoever's listening for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>